The space shuttle is often used as an example of why you shouldn't even attempt to make something reusable. But one failed experiment does not invalidate the greater goal. If that was the case, we'd never have the light bulb. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your host and girlfriend, Matthew Russell. Oh, yeah, baby, Elon Musk. Ah, so yes, that was Elon Musk talking about the space shuttle. And today we've got Kevin Fong on a very, very quick and special episode brought to you by one of the Patreons. A Patreon like Justin Roberts, who likes to keep the lights on here at Interplanetary Podcast HQ. Uh, But this time it was Dr. Bob Hodges who said, Matt, Matt, I've got Kevin Fong to come on the show to talk about his latest project, 16 Sunsets, which is currently at the Kickstarter stage. Uh, Everyone should have known Kevin Fong from his 13 Minutes to the Moon podcast, which was one of the best things ever in lockdown. So, uh, yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is an interview with Kevin we did the other day. There is 14 days to go on this Kickstarter. So have a listen to this uh, interview. If you've never heard 13 Minutes to the Moon, do it. And then you'll go, I really should uh, maybe get 16 sunsets off the ground. Um, so thank you, Dr. Bob Hodges. Uh, I'm going to let you take it away to introduce Mr. Kevin Fong. So 12.01 alarm. It's Dr. Kevin Fong, Professor of Public Engagement of Science at UCL. And also, I should point out, it's not the normal Jamie that you can hear there. It's Dr. Bob Hodges as well, who everyone will know from the Discord and occasionally been on the show before. Welcome both of you, uh, uh, particularly Kevin. No, no offence, Bob. <laughs> welcome to the show yeah so so kevin obviously we know you from lots and lots of different things like going way 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 back to space stuff i i think i think is is material world the first spacey thing that you ever did about space travel research that's well remembered yeah i think that probably was almost the first thing i did anywhere in media and that's going back about 25 years or, or that sort of time so yes that's well remembered yeah well, <laughs> well i was i was just thinking oh i mean first of all how did you get from being a doctor to to being in the media often associated with space travel i think like most people's careers it's all happy accident uh um, and i you know i didn't start out as a medic originally i started out studying astrophysics at ucl um and you know, I'm kind of fond of telling people that I, I sort of, at that point, I, I I lived with medical students and, and I had this idea that I wanted to go to medical school. Uh, and in my second year of physics, I was living with these medical students. And one night we came home and I looked at them all lolling around on the sofa. And I thought to myself, how hard could it possibly be? So <laughs> I went to medical school. So, um, uh, and, and then went to med school uh, and uh, I, in my final year, I wrote an awful lot of letters to NASA, and eventually they sort of just gave up, and they said, look, come and do an intern job with us. Um, and I worked with their medical operations group. Um, I think now it's formally called Human Adaptation and Countermeasures Office. Uh, and after that, I just kept finding excuses to go back. And, and so I had this sort of double life where I was training as a junior doctor in aesthetics and intensive care, uh, at the same time as I was sort of heading back across the pond to go and do bits of visiting research with with Johnson Space Centre. Did your colleagues ever go? Are, are you actually joking? Where you're there, you know, doing your normal <laughs> normal day job, and then say, oh, "I've just got to nip off to NASA this week." Yeah, yeah. I, I, I 
I think people were quite puzzled about my career choices. Um, but but for me, it was a real escape valve, really. Uh, you know, the, the, the jobs are very intense. They still are today. Uh, and, and for me, it was really actually quite lovely to be able to get on a plane and then disappear off to something completely separate, really, where... From in, in in many ways, it was sort of getting back to that thing that I'd had during astrophysics, which was this sort of, you know, beautiful headlong dive into something that's quite esoteric, um, but it's just fascinating, endlessly science for the sake of science type type thing. So, um, so yeah, there were many raised eyebrows, but uh, I, I kept going. It was sort of kind of a therapy for me, really. Yeah, and you've and you've written books on the subject as well, haven't you? You've done you've done extreme medicine. Is that is that one of the ones? So yeah, so so well, that that's because. The, the thing that dawned on me as I was, you know, running this double life is, is that, you know, exploration is exploration. And, and I would work in intensive care and I would look at these people who were trying, you know, desperately to look after. And, and it looked, it was, you know, it's there at the edge of possibility. This thing that you're doing as an intensive care doctor is at the edge of all possibility with the bleeding edge of all that science, technology and engineering has to offer. And then you pop off to NASA and you'd watch them do the same thing, but in the name of sort of physical exploration. And, and, um, and, and so I sort of got this sense of being at the edge of the envelopes of possibility wherever I was in my career. And, and, and so the book that I wrote, Extreme Medicine, I think is the American edition, was about that, was, was about how there were the parallels and the exploration that took us out across the globe and then out into space is also the same spirit of exploration that took us inwards to push the boundaries of medicine. And, and, and you know, I, I enjoyed just writing those stories because they're, they're, you know, they're all explorers in, in a way, yeah. all pioneers. I mean, the, the one thing that I think, and I think, Bob, we, we've talked about this on the Discord quite a lot, is that, that over the course of doing this podcast over about seven years, and whenever we talk about human exploration, it's really, it's all comes down. It all comes to down what's, what's medically possible with things like radiation and psychology and all those sort of elements added in. But when you're trying to send fleshy bags of viruses and bacteria up into space, it's, 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 it's difficult, isn't it? And, and, and I guess that, that I actually think that maybe doctors haven't had enough to say in the whole um, experience of outer space. Yeah, I was going to say, Scott Kelly narrows it down to carbon dioxide in his book Endurance and how he could actually feel the parts per million rising when extra crew joined and how that made him feel and gave him a headache. And so closed loop life support is uh, yet to be cracked really, isn't it? Yeah, um, well, the, the whole endeavour of human spaceflight is quite crazy when you realise what it truly is, you know, forging this bubble of artificial life support in the void of space, you know, an environment that was stripped of that, you can't persist even for a few seconds. And and so, um, no, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and the thing that's allowed us to, well, you see, I don't think it is medicine, actually. It, it, it's the engineering, really, that makes it possible, because the extremes, it, it's only really since the industrial revolution that we've been able to explore the full spectrum of the extremes of the earth uh, because you need industrial protection to go to the south pole to go to the summit of everest you need either oxygen systems or clothes that perform well you know it's amazing isn't it reading those accounts of the polar explorers 
even of the start of the 20th century, traipsing along and freezing into their own clothes because they don't have breathable fabrics. They, they, they have fabrics that soak up sweat and then in, in, in minus 20, minus 30 degrees Celsius, just freeze around them. And, and so uh, I, I think it's engineering and I think it's that, that ability to create these cocoons of life support around people that has pushed us forwards. And I, I think that that's also true of medicine. I just find it always very frustrating when I see the, the, the kind of optimists like e- Elon Musk and their trips to Mars. And it doesn't sort of take in the, this, the sort of human element of it. So you, you uh, yeah, I, I agree, obviously, that the, the engineering element of it around you is supremely important. But the engineers perhaps talk too much rather than the than the than the people that the the fleshy people who care about the the fleshy stuff probably don't get as big a say (laughs) yeah i well i i think there are a whole bunch of very very difficult obstacles for martian exploration but I, i it's not that i'm optimistic but it's just that if you look at what the limits of expectation to life and exploration were at the start of the 20th century and how different they were at the end of that century. Um, If the end of the 21st century is as different from the start of the 21st century as the ends of the 20th century were from each other, then then Mars is going to happen and much, much more besides. And I think it's going to be very hard for us to imagine it. I, I think it's really hard because of the pace of change. The pace of change is so fast. I think it's really hard for us to imagine what that's going to look like. So I do think we'll get there um, whether it will be in my lifetime, I'm unclear. And I, th- I think it poss- possibly will happen. And it can happen, but it's about risk. It's about your acceptance of risk. It's about your willingness to accept that you'll go on this expedition with a significant fractional chance that everyone will die and you'll lose the vehicle. Because that, that's actually what stands in our way. It's that there's no, there's no physical showstopper there's no fundamental you don't have to invent faster than light travel or wormholes or you know anything to do it it's just you have to be prepared to probably die if you go <laughs> and, yeah and that 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 is actually the big challenge right society is very risk averse these days well yeah I, I i do think that if you were i think if anyone if you're watching national heroes which they would be at that point and it, you know if you think about how much was around tim peak when he went to the you know international space station on on essentially something that's really quite routine how how like he's he's a national hero at that point you think can you imagine what that would be multiplied for people going to mars and then to the risk of them all dying just seems to be al- almost grotesque in my mind i'm sort of i've played it out a few times of how that would play out in a, a slowly unfolding thing and you think crikey yeah and, and but then i wasn't around for the apollo the, the Apollo missions, and I don't know what the mindset was when when people were going to the moon and, and how much they accepted the risk of, of that. Well, I know because I spoke to quite a lot of the Apollo crews and the risk acceptance was huge, partly because most of them had come out of test pilot program where death was the ever-present feature of that program. I mean, you know, in Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, they talk about at the peak of the United States test pilot program in the sort of 50s and 60s, they were losing one pilot every couple of weeks. So their risk acceptance was very high. But there's a really interesting philosophical question there, which is if you're talking about space exploration that's funded by a nation state and and the people of that that country, 
on whose behalf is risk accepted? The astronauts will all put their hands up for it. That's why in the, they're in the astronaut corps. The engineers want to see it happen, so they may put their hands up for it. But who gets to say this is an acceptable risk? Is it society? Is it the government? Is it, you know, and, and I, that's what I never know because the astronauts themselves are very risk accepting. They, they have to be, you know, the failure rate of space shuttle at the end of its working life after having flown for 30 years was estimated to be something like one in 25 to one in 50. You know, that's an enormous, enormous probabilistic risk. And yet people rode it in that knowledge. I, I kind of get the feeling that, that a lot of the a lot of the people that rode the shuttle didn't realise how risky it was until you had Challenger. and Or, or did they? I mean, it, it seemed that like people lost track of, of the risk. And I know this... You know, maybe this is something that you'll talk about in uh, in sixteen sunsets if you if if we get if we get on to talking about it, because but you but you've but you've actually done you've before we get on to sixteen sunsets you you have actually spoken in depth before haven't you about the space shuttle you you you've done documentaries on the space shuttle it, is it is it is is the space shuttle uh, something that you kind of really loved and 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 and. Th- or, or, or something that you found fascinating? Absolutely. I mean, you know, human space exploration has driven my whole career. I, I, you know, as a child growing up, it was all that, uh, you know, Apollo was in the rear view mirror by the time I was growing up and 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 it was shuttle. It's shuttle really that was the backdrop to my life. And, and it, that was the thing that I understood to be space exploration. So yes, I'm personally fascinated and, and, and professionally invested because I spent quite a lot of time working with the teams in Houston while shuttle program was in operation, you know, I t- first turned up there in 97 and I was with them on and off for more than a decade. Um, but, but shuttle's fascinating for all the reasons that we've just spoken about, which is why we want to tell this story. You know, it's a, it's an epic story. We, we told the story of Apollo 11. We told the story of Apollo 13 in our podcast series, 13 minutes to the moon for the BBC. But this is the, another canvas altogether huge fast canvas you know project apollo was less than 10 years flashed the bang really and uh and and put six crews on the moon this is 30 years 135 missions hundreds of people going into space uh, pushing back the boundaries and so um absolutely i want to tell that story because it it, it we, partly because it happened without us almost noticing right so if we if if you're of a certain age you'd get to the end of the news item and if they didn't have a skateboarding duck to talk about they say and the space shuttle atlantis is going on its 53rd mission into space or whatever it was and 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 almost as though it was routine but it was never routine and there was always enormous risk And, and actually i do think the professional astronauts did understand the risk because if you know anything about engineering if you know anything about the systems upon which you're perched you cannot cannot escape the, the reality that is that this is a, 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 an uncertain risky technology you know it's a it's a object with the explosive capacity of a small nuclear weapon that's going to go from naught to 17,500 miles an hour over eight minutes <laughs> and then redeploy itself in space in orbit hurtling around and then it's going to re-enter the atmosphere and try and trade that kinetic energy for thermal energy so that it can come to wheel stop on a runway as a conventional aircraft glider might. Um, and so, of course, I think they knew that that was dangerous. Um, so uh, there is that question about they, they, they got so 
confident with the technology that they were flying American senators. And so, so those people, the so-called space participants, were they fully appraised of the risks? That is something that I don't know. And it's something that I'd really like to better understand, which is which is why, you know, we've decided to try and make this podcast series, which we want to call 16 Sunsets, um, because I think that all of that is worth exploring. You know, what 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 does it mean? What does risk mean? And what does risk mean? when it's realised? It's an interesting question. Are you planning to, to look at the whole of the space shuttle programme rather than just the, the development and the first mission like uh, Roland White did in his book, uh, Into the Black? Well, I think, I think again, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a mine of potential, that programme. And, and there's so much hidden and so much unknown about it that part of our task in making this podcast series, you know, 16 sunsets is because uh, you know even with apollo one of the most told and retold stories in modern history you were still able to tell it in a way that people thought i've never heard that before and and we know that we can do the same with shuttle and and most people the man or woman in the street for most people shuttle was four missions the first one the two accidents and the last one but actually there are 131 other missions and so um there's so much there and there's so much going on and so much that's unexpected and for me my the thing that i do professionally my career is looking at systems understanding how they tick why they succeed why they sometimes fail and being able to thread that but you can't do that you can't do that without taking a deep dive and immersing yourself and so for me it's sort of you know the the device of a podcast series for me is really just this opportunity to use it as an excuse to do that type of exploration you know to have some focus to your exploration so i'm really hoping we get to make it we're doing it very differently this time we're um we're gonna we're going it alone we wanted to have total freedom to explore um uh in that sense and uh and we're tr- we're at the moment we're running a kickstarter campaign which i've never done before so that was a that was a that was a new experience for me um and and so um so yeah we're hoping people will come with us um and uh and and so yeah you can you can you can find this project if you get onto kickstarter.com and and type in 16 sunsets you'll find us there and we're hoping enough people come with us to make it happen. I mean, we, we kind of skipped, we skipped a step in terms of, and we should talk about 13 minutes to the moon because that, that was like, for me, I felt like a really groundbreaking podcast. Is it, is it the same? Is it the same team? Have you, have you got a a pretty similar team around this new one that's that you, as you did for 13? Because it's the BBC world service. Is that right? For the, for 13 minutes to moon? For 13 minutes to the moon, it was done with BBC and with BBC world service specifically. And, um, uh, sadly the science unit that, that I worked with to produce it as sort of a lot of people left, and in particular, my two crewmates, Rami Zabar and Andrew Luck Baker, who I've worked with for years on lots of other things, not just 13 minutes. And, you know, we joke about getting the band back together now that they've left the BBC, but it is like being in a rock band, that stuff, in terms of you all have your different strengths and you bounce off one another. And and I, I remember barreling up really excitedly telling them that we needed to make something for the 50th anniversary of, of the first landing on the moon. And, and actually most of the senior commissioners didn't believe it could be done. They said, everyone knows that story. No one's really interested. We may give you two, three episodes. You can't tell it at length, but we knew that that was the problem. The problem was that you have to explode it and explore it 
and do it at length. Because before we came in with 13 Minutes to the Moon, the received wisdom was, if you're going to do a long-form podcast, it has to be true crime, really, and, and, and you can't make it compelling in any other way. And I think we really broke that mould. And then the other thing was, you know, the so-called MacGuffin of it, the what is the thing that drew you through it? And we spent days, possibly weeks, poring over the mission transcripts, looking at the timelines, knowing that you couldn't focus on the entire thing. You'd just lose it. So you had to bring it to some sort of, um, I, I don't know, some specific period of time. And you know, at one point we're like, is it 86 hours to the moon? Is that what we want to call it? You know, there, there are some key moments uh, along the way. And then I remember there was a sort of eureka moment where I realized that 13 minutes is just about the moment that they do the begin the deorbit burn to start decelerating, get themselves onto the moon. And then, and then it's sort of like a, a, a first domino falling and, and so much happens. Then this furious set of radio traffic. And, and I remember running to Rami and saying, this is it. It's 30. It's not quite, it's not quite 13 minutes at that point. It's 13 minutes and a few seconds. It's 13 minutes to the moon. It would be ludicrous to call it 13 minutes and 42 seconds to the moon or whatever. But, but <laughs> That was it. And I mean, that was our moment where we got really excited about it. And, you know, I, I, I love working with those guys. I love working with Rami uh, Zabar and Andrew Luckbaker, particularly, because I always turn up like this excited child with this great idea. And I always at the start know more about it than they do. But at the end, they always know more than I do about it. And 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 we've sort of traded that, that you know, my my vision for the structure against their absolute attention to detail. So, so, you know, Andrew and I wrote the scripts um, and we, we created the whole thing. So, so we kind of wanted a chance to do that again, partly because we just enjoy doing that. Really. Yeah. First of all, 16 sunsets, you've explained 13 minutes to the moon, but you haven't explained 16 sunsets as a, as a title. Well, it's different, isn't it? I think the time base for Shuttle is different because, again, it's stretched out over 30 years, three decades. And 16 Sunsets, for me, crystallised because uh, you're... I've just got someone coming through the front door to look at me. I'll start that again while they smash the door. Okay. Um, so Shuttle's on a different timeline, isn't it? And it... it it runs over three decades. And so the thing that crystallized it for me is that shuttle missions are parked there sort of on the edge of space, you know, in low Earth orbit, and, and they sit there uh, and sort of, you know, perched between the reality of Earth and the, the infinite void beyond. And as they're hurtling around the Earth at, at orbital velocity, they watch the sun rise and set 16 times a day, every 90 minutes. And so, you know, that romantic idea of this vehicle that is watching 16 sunsets every day, uh, I, I kind of liked. And so that, that we, we thought that was quite a good alliterative title that, that we could, we could hit upon. And, and, you know, and it sort of speaks more to what this program of exploration was. It wasn't so much that it was going somewhere. It was what it was doing. It was sort of it was sort of making good your purchase in, in the realm of space. You know, you weren't getting in and out like a bank job anymore. You were looking to try and establish semi-permanent and later permanent presence. So uh, that's what makes it so fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, I mean, it did achieve that, didn't it? It, it, it? The shuttle program did achieve permanent human presence in, in, in space for the time being. 
Well, well, absolutely, it did. And, and you know, I, I say that to my students who who I lecture at university, who are you know in the, in their early twenties, and I say you've never been alive at a time where there hasn't been a human being in space. You know, and you take that for granted. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, Thunderbirds was on, and that was one of the science fiction storylines that people would be permanently living in space, looking down on the Earth. But that is a reality now. And um, so, yeah, I, it achieved that and many, many more things. And um, so, so that is why we called it Sixteen Sunsets. And you know, it's a bit of a leap of faith for us, but I couldn't. You know, I, 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 I didn't. Once, once Rami and Andrew had left the BBC, I kind of, I, I didn't want that to be the last thing we'd ever done together. And, um, and so, so yeah, we decided to, to take this leap of faith and put together a Kickstarter campaign and, 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 you know, go through that whole process again for us, which we really enjoy, you know, that whole fire of ideas that we have. Uh, and then, then the, the two of them trying to put some of my crazier fires out and then, and then, and then getting to getting to the final product. And we know that this story is every bit as epic as Apollo. When you're doing 30 minutes to the moon, did, there must've been some like re- very surprising elements. I mean, I know it always seems very weird when there's a story that is as told as the Apollo missions, that there's still funny and unusual stories or or you know interesting stories that that I've I've never heard that still keep coming to to light now and you must have had some pretty epic moments doing that is is one of the motivations for doing things like 16 sunsets a, a similar sort of thing that you you you're, that you're going to uncover for your own just for your own satisfaction more than anything is the, these like beautiful jewels of of uh, stories well that's that's absolutely the joy of it for me you know i think exploration is many things and i, I think you know that victorian victorian era of heroic exploration isn't the only kind of exploration you don't have to strap on you know gore-tex and grab an ice axe not everyone explores that way and you can be an explorer as stephen hawking showed us and 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 be confined physically but explore the universe and so that is that is absolutely what i want to do and that's what we did in apollo and you know there's something about the skills you acquire as a doctor in you know, the first thing they do as a medical student, you know, as, as Bob will tell you, is to take a history and to understand and to listen for the salient detail and know when that is the important thing to leap upon. And that is very much what we do. And and that for me is the truest exploration of this thing. Because if you know where you're going, if you know the story already that you're going to tell in total, it's not exploration at all. You know, it's a little bit like that thing that everyone says about university research grants these days. You know, you have to be, you have to prescribe them so carefully that you're already telling them what you're going to discover before you've done the experiment. And that's, that's not what science is. That's not what exploration is. And so here for us, yes, we do have a road map, a route map, but we'll take diversions along the way as we find them, as we always do. And that's what the three of us have always done. And, and they, they know, you know, they know how I work in that way. And they know that sometimes you realize that you're headed in one direction. Actually, you have to take a big diver. And and that's that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah. Is, is there an episode of 13 Minutes to the Moon that that exemplifies that? Is there is an episode that you can think of where it was like started off as one thing, ends up as something completely different? And maybe it would be like anyone that hasn't heard heard 13 Minutes to the Moon might be a good place for them to start. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about the uh, 1201 alarm. And how you actually managed to hang an episode on that and make software engineering exciting all in one go. 
Well, that's because the narrative of Apollo was wrong. And I have to credit David Mendel, who's a professor of astronautics at MIT, who I'd known long before 13. In fact, the, the idea for 13 Minutes really it was hatched in my mind by reading his book called Digital Apollo. Uh, and that's all about the central role of the computer in the landing on the moon, because the narrative up until that point had always been, well, it's, you know, this space age hero wrestling this useless vehicle and it's, and it's, it's primitive computer to the surface of the moon, like a space age tiger moth. And that's not true. That's not true. That's that, that is to underplay the complexity of, of the whole thing. And, um, and so actually that, was very clear in my mind that we would do justice to that computer and all the people who played a part in it. And, 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 you know, again, it was a really joyous thing because you talk to these guys who said, and I actually, I remember David Medell telling me that when they first dropped the contracts for the Apollo guidance computer, there was no word for software because the word hadn't really been invented yet. Oh my yet. God. That didn't yeah. exist in the contracts. And, and so, um, so that was, that was, we knew we were headed in that direction because in many ways I, I had a huge fascination with David's book and, and I, I wanted to be able to tell that story and actually building the series around that story was, was actually quite a nice thing to do. I think the one that was most unexpected to me as, oh, there was so much, there was so much good stuff. I'll, I'll tell, there was a moment where we realized that John Aaron is the flight controller's flight controller. You know, you see all these guys who look identikit sort of uh, pocket protectors and, and thin ties out in mission control. And then you realize that there's a very diverse bunch of people. And John Aaron was just a joy. And, and you realized how much everyone wished they were him. He was such an intuitive, such a brilliant flight engineer, flight controller. Um, and if John couldn't do it, it couldn't be done. And there are examples for all of them where all of them at one point or another rescued uh, an Apollo mission. But John Aaron's work during Apollo 13 is just, you know, it, 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 you have trouble understanding how anyone could have done that. And um, and so, you know, I, I, I love talking to John and not least because he has just his way about him, uh, this sort of, you know, Southern drawl and, uh, and, and a way of storytelling and a turn of phrase that's not like anything else you usually come across. So, uh, you know, I, I think he was my favorite interviewee, which is why we chose to run his, his interview in, in long form uh, in the end. Um, uh, but but I, I think there were so many things along the way and so many surprising things. And I think um, uh, amongst them, I think, was the story of Apollo 8, which we sort of got to. And we weren't sure whether or not we'd cover Apollo 8 as a mission. And then it became so apparent, you know, how much of a bungee jump Apollo 8 was and, and that people started telling us, uh, you know, Apollo 8 is the gutsiest mission of the whole Apollo program because up until then, people have been going in circles around the Earth no no further than a few hundred miles from the surface of the Earth. And these guys hit a go and then travel as fast as anyone's traveled before, as far as anyone's traveled before uh, in an experimental vehicle. And, uh, and, and, and that realization meant that you couldn't 
avoid it. You had to tell that story. Mm. And so I guess that's a good example of how, as you come through the material and you're thinking about how to do it and you're trying to make those judgments about what is and isn't important, you discover something like that. And, and, and uh, you know, you, you could almost do an entire series on Apollo 8, yeah. but, but we had one episode. <laughs> yeah, it always feels like a lot of people come down to, uh, when you're talking about Apollo, Apollo 11 isn't the one, it's Apollo 8. So yeah, I, I kind of got that feeling during the... Uh, during the year of the 50th celebrations that Apollo 8 was one of those missions that you just go yeah imagine that moment of doing the burn as you're dark dark on the other side of the far side of the moon and it's like this is your one chance or you're drifting into the void forever <laughs> lost it just doesn't bear thinking about and but there isn't a single Apollo mission that isn't significant they're all significant in their own way and 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 you know part of the skill of the thing for us was just distilling out what what we felt and, and look there there are ways through that material where you make a completely different series but i i think it, there, it, there was a lot of effort invested in doing that and i think you know like anything and you yourselves as people who make audio and podcast now you know you know what goes into it but i think there's a whole bunch of people who think that as a presenter you turn up and you sit down with the script in front of you and you read it into a microphone but actually that you know that uh, the opposite is true you know so much of it is in being on the road being out there gathering the information coming up with the ideas structuring it and and you know i was lucky to be there with Andrew uh, and, and Rami, um, who, who kind of understood how I worked, and we made that work together. And, and I think that that was, you know, that was the joy of it for us. It was hard yeah, work, but it was. I mean, out of, yeah, I mean, it is a really beautiful series. The, 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 you know, it's one of those ones where it's like I remember getting into podcasting again, listening to podcasts because of Serial, like everyone else, it seemed. And this is the first one of the kind of like the spacey ones where you really do feel as though it's got that like that that proper in-depth people, you, you know, that you can tell that everyone involved has been thinking about it and has had these absolutely epic realisations and moments and the stories, therefore the storytelling is just so great. So I, I can't imagine that you'll have too difficult, too much difficulty, uh, like getting 16 sunsets off the ground. Where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the best? So explain exactly how the listeners can... Um, can find 16 sunsets do do uh, and do the right thing and help you out <laughs> we, like me. we 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 want to get it made and we're sort of building because we realize there's a massive community around this sort of stuff you know it was it was heartening to me that so many people obsessed about space exploration and human space exploration the way i did and so we sort of we're trying to build that community using kickstarter this time someone had the bright idea that maybe we should go there uh, and kickstarter uh, is a platform so you can find it on kickstarter.com and there's a search bar in it and you've typed 16 sunsets our project turns up and and it's a sort of uh, crowdfunding type thing and so kickstarter is basically it's supposed to be this sort of creative crowdsourcing platform that allows you to get stuff made that that you you otherwise wouldn't be able to get made and we sort of i mean as you can tell we have huge belief in this project and and uh, you know, I, I think this is probably the last chance I'll get to do a project on this scale with with Remy and Andrew together. And so I really, really, really want to get it done. Um, so we are in the middle of that campaign. So it's kickstarter.com, 16 sunsets, and you'll find us there. And then you can you can pledge whatever you want to pledge. You can pledge 5p and you can pledge 
500,000 pounds but 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 there's there's a there's there's a big range in big between range. And, and 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 actually i mean the cruel thing about podcasts as you know is they're such a beautiful medium i mean they are the perfect medium for me in in the way that my brain works um and uh and and the production costs actually comparatively to film and tv are so small but you still have, you still have to find that money and and we still have to go out there on the road and buy those flights and get into those hotels and then do the research all of which takes time and investment so so we have got that campaign going we hope we'll get to the target we've got only about another well by the time this goes out probably 10 days to go so so we need all the help what, we can what, get what's the what's the closing date uh, I, that's an excellent question. I think from today, we've probably got about 15 days to go. So I think it closes down probably on about April the 12th, April the 13th, since that sort of, that sort of time. Okay. So if you're watching the ESA juice launch, it might be too late. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so hopefully you've, you've listened to this before then. We thought long and hard before we did this, uh, you know, it was a very special time creating and writing 13 minutes to the moon and and actually so many people have said to me how much of a comfort they found it during covid and of course i myself got sucked into the national response team in the uk for covid19 so i'm kind of just emerging from that again but this kickstarter campaign really is born out of the faith that we have in in what this story is and how much i think we can bring to it and what we could do and and just wanting to have the freedom for it so so do find us uh you can read much more about it on kickstarter dot com and just search for 16 sunsets and and if you feel like backing us back us uh, i will make this somehow but um i prefer just to make it straight out of the gate with the kickstarter yeah and and and, and honestly if 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 anyone hasn't listened to 13 minutes to the moon it, it's it's you will see after listening to it this is this is indeed a, a, a pretty easy punt well thanks so much for having me on it, it's I, it's actually just quite nice to talk about it because you know i think uh, uh, my fa- my family get pretty bored of me talking oh, no, about tell it. me tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. uh, all right guys look thank you so much it's been great to be on with you thanks very much and thanks very thank much you, Bob, as well thank you very much the interplanetary podcast putting the ace Back into space. Ah, so thank you so much, uh, Bob, for organising that. That was Kevin Fong, who's an absolute legend, almost exactly the same age as me and seems to have done quite a lot more with his life. (laughs) Anyway, so yes, thanks, Bob, and thanks to all the other patrons, Paul Hilton, Ian Holland, Bob Hodges, Bob Moore, Ronald Hatcher, Malta Keisling, Alden Vala, Marissa Davis, Mark Schoen, Ben Guthrie, Nicholas Gillenstein, Neil Hansen, Tyrrell McAllister, Gene Watchtanik, Mark Huber, Seth H, James King, or Jim King, Adam French, Mark Kelly, and Steve Croucher. So anyway, this month I'm going to be releasing a few Juice episodes uh, because ESA's Juice launch is coming up very, very shortly. So uh, exciting news about that. Jamie and I will be back in a few days with our Juice episode. So stay tuned, Spudcats. Bye, bye, Spudcats!